journey. It's time to talk with Liz and Peter. Good morning, my love. Good morning, my love. Coffee's good today. What uh, what kind of coffee are we drinking today? The Highlander Grog. And that's made by Cameron's. I don't remember exactly. You could have said basically any brand I think other it's than Cameron's. But either way, none of them are sponsoring us. No, we just like it. But this was the last bit, so we need to buy some more. All right. Well, I'll. Uh, Almost out of coffee. I know. I need to play a grocery. Can't right. record tomorrow if we don't have coffee. Record tomorrow if you don't have coffee. <laughs> so you got an article for us this morning. Yeah. First, give a quick overview about what the article is about. The article is from the Gottman Institute, and it's called How Your Smartphone Might Sabotage Your Relationship. And it's talking about how our uses of smartphones significantly impacts the way we interact with our technology and in a way that flip phones were different. This is just m way more engaging and time consuming and can also send them the message to the person that we're with that our phones are more important than they are, whether it's a friend, family member, a significant other, or children. And so the article is basically talking about how cell phones are affecting our relationships. And it looked at married people and found that excessive cell phone usage decreases marital satisfaction and contributes to a greater likelihood of depression. The article found that 86% of American adults constantly check their devices for social media updates, emails, and text messages. The article basically said, the implications are clear, our most important relationships can be dulled and diminished in favor of screen time. The article also briefly talks about the importance of bids for connection, and that's a you know, Dr. John and Julie Gottman, that's a key element of their theory is these bids for con connection. We say things to our partner that may seem insignificant. It might just be like, oh, look at the cat outside, but it's our way of connect with our partner. And if our partner ignores us or doesn't respond, it's like a rejected bid. It may not seem like that big of a deal, but when someone's trying to connect with us and we act like they're not there, it kind of hurts. And sometimes people will try again, like, oh, how was your day? But if again, they don't get a response, they stop trying after a while. And that's how you end up with years down the road couples who like don't engage with each other whatsoever. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I mean, I don't like saying it because like we've all been there where you just don't have anything to say. But those couples at restaurants who just aren't talking to each other, it makes me wonder how many years of rejected bids have there been before you get to the point where you have nothing to say to them because you know part of you feels like you're not going to be accepted, received, or responded to. So you stop trying. But Dr. Gottman's research shows that successful couples turn toward each other about 86% of the time. So accepting your partner's bid requires paying attention to your partner which is something you can't do if you're on your phone. So the article talked about spending device-free time together. So wait, real quick, real quick. Us sitting here, me not looking at my phone, and you telling me about a ting, and we're facing each other. Did I just accept your bid? Are we connecting right now? Mm, when you said, when I was researching for this topic, and you said, oh, Liz, story about, and then insert story about the cats from last night. But I was scrolling through my phone, looking up an article for today's topic. Mm. Me... Me looking away from my phone and saying, oh yeah, I remember that from last night, and it briefly engaging with you in a banter over it, mm -hmm. was me literally turning toward you while I was doing something else. Like, I could have just said, uh-huh, mm -hmm. and kept scrolling. That would have been a rejected bid. You were trying to engage with me even though I was doing something else. So, okay, let me know if this is an example of an accepted bid. Say I'm playing video games, and I'm like, Liz, look at this cool thing I did. And then you come over and you're like, oh, that's so cool, BB. And then you give me a pat on the head. Uh-huh. Is that an accepted that's bid? That's an accepted bid. And so, a rejected bid is when you're like, oh, Liz, can I show you something? And I'm like, 
Babe, I'm pretty busy right now. Basically, me playing video games and you accepting me for that is going to keep us from being a non-talkative old couple. If you think that every time you're explaining Crusader Kings to me, I am that invested. You're, like, you're completely enraptured. You're, if you you're really believe that, then lol. But it is really a, an extension of my love for you. Mm -hmm. I care about what you have to say. I care about what you're doing. I want to engage with you and what's important to you. So another example of accepting bids, though, regarding Crusader Kings is when I come and tap you on the shoulder while you're playing because I miss you. Mm -hmm. And instead of being like, hey, I'm in the middle of something, you pause your podcast that you're listening to, pull a headphone down, and you always tap the chair next to you. You tap the seat of the chair and invite me to sit by you. And you go, what's up? And you keep playing, but you're accepting my bid of, hey, I want to connect with you right now. What are you doing? I miss you. And when you engage with me, even though I know you're doing something that you enjoy, it feels good. It feels like turning toward me despite what's going on. I'm more important than Crusader Kings at the end of the day is the message I receive from you. So we do turn toward each other's bids, I would say, at least 86% of the time. 86%. And... We, I think we have a, a good system in place where we can allow for each other's autonomy because one of the things you and I have been working on for the past year is asking the question, hey, will you let me know when you get to a stopping point? And that gives the other person time to finish up or wrap up what they're do doing or get to a stopping point so that they can give their full attention to the speaker. And I think that it's so respectful of each other's time because we're often in the same room, probably more than a lot of couples, we're in the same room doing stuff. And we want to be respectful of what the other person's doing on their technology whether it's work or hobby or just leisure but we're wanting to say hey I have something to share with you and I think part of why it's so important that we say let me know when you get to a stopping point is I think we engage with each other a lot a lot a lot so doing that allows us to engage in a way that doesn't feel like we're constantly disrupting each other yeah agree completely thanks to our therapist we won't say her name for confidentiality reasons hers not ours obviously I'm saying it. Her name's Cynthia, and I love her. I love our therapist. I'm not giving her last name. So, Sea Dog, thanks a bunch. You're the best. Did she come up with the stopping point thing, or did yeah. we? No, she did. She came up with the pause thing. We... So, anywho, anywho, without getting too deep into our therapy session, one thing about this article, the concept of technology, especially screens, being responsible for the degradation of our interpersonal relationship is something that I've seen come up over and over again over the last 15 years or so. When I, and I, I feel like I tell this story a lot, but I don't think I've told it here yet, but when I was in college, 07 to 11, I went to the journalism school at the University of Kansas. And they had a program, I wasn't in this program that I'm about to describe, but I had friends who were and I would walk past the building every day that this program was taking place in. It was a dual program between a media studies group at the journalism school and some child psychology department in the psych school or whatever, social sciences or wherever that falls. But they used the kids in the daycare as uh, an experimental group obviously like with their parents' consent and all that. And they divided the kids into two groups. One group of kids got unlimited screen time, iPads all the time, whatever they wanted, as far as screens go, both at home and at the childcare center. And then the second group of kids didn't get screens at the childcare center and got very, very limited screen time at home, less than 30 minutes evening at home. And so they weren't completely, you know, because nobody's completely devoid of screens, especially nowadays, much less 15 years ago. And if I'm remembering correctly, the findings of the study were really 
creepy to me. Basically, they found the kids who had unlimited screen time scored way worse on tests that measured how well they identified emotions based on facial features, faces being made. And so, for example, these kids that had unlimited screen time wouldn't be able to tell the difference between surprised and angry, right? You kind of want to be able to, as a human being, be able to differentiate between when someone's angry at you or surprised. And this went to other emotions too. I can't remember some of the specific ones, but basically taking mo emotions that are not quite the same, but seeing them as the same. That would be a frightening way to go through life as a kid if you don't have the full range of emotions that most people around you have. And the researchers hypothesized that the reason was because they spent so much time not looking into the face of another human being and just looking at a screen that they weren't working out the muscles to be able to differentiate between the nuances of emotion. And so, in a way, their physical and emotional development was being retarded. And yeah, that made me, at that point, you know, I'm like an 18 to 22 year old college student. And at that point I was like, I'm never letting my kids touch screens. This right here, this technology is going to make us emotionally inept. And I feel like this article is 15 years later, the logical conclusion of what I was seeing in that childcare center at the University of Kansas. And it makes me really sad, like super sad. So I just want to throw that out there because that's what it made me think of. Hearing you talk about it made me think of something we've learned about in our program, which is about mirror neurons in mm -hmm. our brain. Have you heard of them? Yeah. That allow us to pick up on the emotions and state of being of the of someone in like front of us. Thoughts and feelings. Thoughts and, and feelings. Yeah. And we mirror them in our own head. Our mirror neurons pick up on it so that we're able to feel what the other person's feeling. Yeah, and so it's, like, it's like if, if you see somebody whose loved one has died and they're really sad... The parts of your brain that are going to be reacting are going to be as though your loved one died and you're really sad. And you're really sad. If someone yawns, you might yawn. If someone smiles, you might smile. Mm -hmm. When you're watching a movie and something sad happens, you might start crying. But if you are so, more... Someone might be uh, attracted to you and then you weren't attracted to them, but as soon as they were attracted, showed attraction to you, you became attracted That's to them. That's a really good point. Ding. Get hey, me. all you 16-year-old boys out there, just keep trying. There's my advice. Oh, my God. Um... <laughs> But Everybody it, likes to be chased. If the child is more attuned to the technology than to another person, maybe they their their mirror neurons are like underworked. Maybe they couldn't attune to human beings as much. And yeah. this is completely unrelated, but these neurons are partially what's related to moms being so attuned. And I'm not going to just say moms, I'm sorry. Primary caretakers being so attuned to their newborn babies. Mm -hmm. Those mirror neurons are what allow you to know when your child's hungry or like about to cry or like know where the child is in the bed so you don't roll over them. You're attuned to what's going on with the child. So, so yeah. So is it because I have so many mirror neurons developed between me and the cat that I don't roll over him when I'm asleep at night? Honestly, same. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think we're attuned to the cat. We sense their motion. We spend a lot of time with them. It's the same thing to me. I don't know if this is still mirror neurons or just attunement, and I'm not sure if the mechanism is the same, but you know how the other day we were sitting together and I'd had a really hard day, a long day, and you, we were literally just watching Netflix and you gave me your hand and you were like, are you okay? I hadn't said anything. I hadn't done anything, but you could sense that I needed comfort. You were attuned to my internal state because we spend so much time together.
together. You could sense something being off with me, I didn't have to say it. Like that to me is really cool. But if a child is spending more time with technology or an iPad or a phone, maybe they have less practice doing that with other people. Makes sense to me, yeah. Another thing that I really liked about this article is that it gave actionable advice toward the end. They basically said, if you're, if you're having trouble with what, if you're having trouble similar to what we described just now, here's what you can do, you know, mm -hmm. stop, turn toward your partner, look them right in the eyes, have a 30 minute conversation. There are settings on your phone that can make it so that you're not constantly getting notifications and being like, like do not disturb, but you're able to set it so certain people can go through the do not disturb block, yeah. like for work or emergency. Maybe you have a sick relative that you need to be, or maybe somebody's pregnant. You know, right. Yeah. 